Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Sarah Abbasi, and I will be your moderator for today's program with Daisy Khan. The Commonwealth Club has, of course, shifted from in-person programs to virtual events, and the club is grateful for the support of its viewers. If you wish to make a donation to the club, please click on the blue donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. I'd also like to remind you to submit questions via the chat room next to your screen, and I'll try to get to as many questions as I can later on in the program. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Daisy Khan. Daisy is founder of the Women's Islamic Initiative in Spirituality and Equality, known as WISE. She is co-founder and former executive director of the American Society of Muslim Advancement, author of Born with Wings, and executive editor of Wise Up, Knowledge Ends Extremism. Daisy has devoted much of her life to fighting Islamophobia, increasing public understanding of Islam, and breaking down barriers between Muslims and people of other faiths. Daisy served for 18 years as executive director of the American Society for Muslim Advancement. She was celebrated as a bridge builder for promoting cultural and religious harmony through intrafaith programs, such as Muslim Leaders of Tomorrow and the Interfaith Arts Programs. To combat anti-Muslim bias, Daisy created the Today I Am a Muslim Too rally involving 100 interfaith organizations. Daisy has also worked to modernize the role of women within Islam. She believes that women's leadership is essential to solving societal issues and helped establish the Wise Muslim Women Shura Council. The goal of this council is to help women reclaim a religious and legal voice. The council issues informed and religiously grounded opinions on controversial issues of particular relevance to Muslim women in their personal, familial, and societal lives. By advocating a constructive concept of women's status, rights, and responsibilities, Daisy believes these opinions function as legitimate alternatives to oppressive religious arguments. Daisy's awards and honors include the Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award, Edinburgh Peace Award, and the Interfaith Center's Award for Promoting Peace. She's been listed among Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and was ranked among the top 10 women of faith leaders by the Huffington Post. Daisy plans to follow her 2018 memoir, Born with Wings, with two forthcoming books, 30 Rights of Muslim Women and Wise Up White Supremacy. Today, we'll have an important conversation with Daisy about Islam and the advancement of Muslim women. Welcome, Daisy. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you very much, Sarah, for having me. And I also want to thank all those people at Commonwealth who are behind the scenes who have made this program possible. Absolutely. Now, um, I recently finished reading your book, um, Born with Wings, um, and I think everyone should get a copy. It is um, so well written, full of wonderful anecdotes, um, and told with just such a great sense of humor. Um, my first question to you is, what prompted you to write a book about your life? Well, it didn't start out that way. It really started out because I had been confronted by these common misconceptions about Islam and about Muslim women. You know, there's this perennial perception that women are oppressed and do not have the autonomy to live their lives separately from their husbands or the men in their families. And I knew, uh, you know, with the work that I was doing in the community, that this could be, you know, not further from the truth. In Islam, all women and men are absolute have absolute moral and spiritual equality. So through my work, I had begun to meet a lot of amazing women who were on the front lines of creating change in their own communities. So I decided to set the record straight about Muslim women and who they were by publishing a book titled 100 Heroines of Islam. 
And I met two literary agents who examined these photos and found the kaleidoscope of women's faces truly striking. They loved it. And then they said, there is a problem. The market for illustrated books is gone. Nobody does coffee table books anymore. And then they asked me about my work with these women. As I spoke about my passion for women's rights and the work I was undertaking around the world, their interest was piqued. So they asked me, had I written a book about my life? And I said, I could not imagine why anyone would want to read such a book. So they looked at each other, smiled, and then said, we would. And so the memoirs was born. And I wrote it so people could have a cup of tea with me uh, while I give people a nuanced picture of Islam, of Muslims, and, you know, which is currently arguably the most misunderstood and misrepresented faith on our planet today. Yeah, I know. And it definitely is the kind of book you can have with sort of a cup of tea and, and several cups of tea because it's, it's just things, you know, it, and there's chapters and areas I sort of go back on and, and read because just the, your anecdotes. So um, I'm so glad you wrote it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but I also wanted to ask you um, if you could tell us about the title of the book, Born with Wings. Is there a meaning or is there a story behind um, that title and why you chose that particular title? Well, there are several stories behind it. One is a mystical, mystical story, which I think that I will leave that for people to actually read the book. But real, the real story is Rumi, as many people who know him, is the 13th century Muslim theologian and most favored poet in America. He has a poem in which he says, you are born with wings, so why crawl through life? For me, this is a metaphor for the human condition. We are all born equal with dignity, and inherent capabilities to realize our potential as a human being, or even to reach great heights, by, but external circumstances somehow prevent us from doing so. And in order for us to achieve these great heights, we must discover our purpose. Why are we here? And what am I supposed to do? And then what is my talent that will make me flourish or achieve my goal? So this is why in the book, I share my own journey of self-discovery, as well as highlighting my interactions with the winged women around the world. That illustrated book that I could not publish, I decided to write the stories of books and insert those stories throughout all the chapters. And I want to show how situations of distress, as many of these women are confronted with, and danger, which is real, because I'm dealing with women in Afghanistan right now and how they are fleeing and how they are afraid for their lives, how their situation of distress and danger can be transformed into hope and triumph. And also by uniting women together, you know, by showing that women are coming together and working together with one another, we can breathe a life into the vision of gender equality globally. And by getting involved, we can take our rightful place and uh, not be oppressed by tradition or injustice, but rather to stand on equal footing as human beings. I think that's, I think so, that's powerful so powerful and, and, and incredibly, incredibly empowering, empowering as, well, as well, as you as kind of you talk, talk about, about this global, global sisterhood. sisterhood. And, and um, um, on, the on the note of empowerment, empowerment there's, there's a, 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 um, at the beginning, the beginning of, your of your book, you, you uh, tell, uh, this, tell wonderful this wonderful story, story about, about a pair of red boxing red gloves, gloves that you, that you received, received as a gift. As a gift. Um, um, can you can share, you share that, story that story with our, with our audience? audience? Well, before I even share the story, I just want to tell the men that are listening, it's so important for a father to empower his daughter because there is nothing more important. I mean, uh, you know, a daughter looks up to the father and if you have a father that empowers you when you're a little girl, you can move mountains. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was about three years old and I think I had been bullied. Uh, and so I was standing there with my face all down and my father came up to me with these massive red boxing gloves. I was barely three years old, a little girl. And he was teaching me how to punch, pow, pow, pow. <laughs> and, you know, I, years later, I asked my father, did you ever give me a pair of boxing gloves? And he said, yes. And he remembered it. And I said, why? He said, because you were the third of three daughters and somebody had bullied you. And I wanted you to learn how to fight for yourself. And if necessary, punch them in the face. And that's the world I came into. And I always treasured those gloves because they meant that my father had confidence in me. 
And the thought of having a real fight with real gloves never really occurred to me. But even as a little girl, I knew that the gloves were always speaking to me. And I did put the gloves on many, many times. It has become a metaphor for me now in life, you know, because there are many challenges that we face. So I always put my gloves on. So I wore, I wore them when I came to America for my education. I wore them when I moved out of my home to start a career. I wore them when I actually wrote my first protest letter to Newsday for my college campus. I actually wore them when I refused an arranged marriage to a prince and married an imam instead. And I wore them when I felt the burden of what it means to be a Muslim woman, because that was the real fight that I had to fight. I wore them to convince imams to issue a fatwa against child marriage. I wear them all the time to honor my faith. And finally, I have now begun to wear them, put them both on to fight the extremists among not only my own faith, but also the extremists that are challenging us here in our beloved country, America. And I think at the end of the day, since the very first day when I was 33 years old in the yard in Kashmir, I have never really taken off those red boxing gloves. I feel that I have quietly passed them along to my sisters around the world. And now I will be passing them on to my sisters here in the United States. I think that's wonderful. And your, your father is absolutely amazing for, to, at such a young age for you to sort of empower you that way and sort of let you know, you know, he's, he's got your back but that you also have your kind of your own strength within you. And so I want to touch on some of the other, um, or we'll talk about some of the other things you touched on in terms of fighting um, some of the extremism here. But before we even get to that in your book, um, and I wanted to kind of maybe walk through your book for, for the audience, um, you mentioned, you talk about learning about religion and religious teachings, um, more from your grandparents, from Moji and Dadaji. Um, while you were growing up in Kashmir and just sort of their life examples with some of the things they did around the community. And I thought if you could just share um, specific examples that come to mind of how they imparted sort of Islam or religious teachings um, on you or to you as a child. So we lived in an extended family in a very large home. There were about 16 children in our house at one time. They were, we were not all siblings. We were cousins and everyone together. Uh, we were like the Von Trapps. You know, remember that movie? <laughs> I mean, uh, and uh, they sent in a religious tutor who was brought in to teach us Arabic because Arabic is the sacred language. The Quran is written in Arabic. And, we had, and, and he was there to teach us how to read and write the Quran. And just like the Von Trapps, we made this guy's life miserable. One cousin pulled a knife on him. Another one put a mouse under his chair. And he fled like his pants were on fire. And we all cheered on, not realizing how detrimental this was going to be for us long term. I mean, today, I, I, I want to kill myself because I don't know how to read the Arabic the way I should. And but there was, so there was no formal education because no imam would ever come to our house again because the word is, was out that this is a terrible family. So we basically watched our elders put the Quran into action. And there's a verse in the Quran that there's no compulsion in religion. So there was no compelling or doctrine passed on to us. It was religion by emulation. When giving charity, our grandfather would show us how charity must be given by the right hand so the left hand does not know. And the motto of the family was another verse of the Quran that was emblazoned everywhere on walls in books. And it says, Rabbi Zidni Ilma, God increase my knowledge. And this was applicable to both boys and girls. So my grandfather came to the U.S. to study engineering at Harvard. And when he returned home, he became a chief engineer and built everything there. And then... Um, you know, then my father was sent to America to pursue an education here as well in transportation. He too returned home. But when it was time for me, and there was no future theme for me in Kashmir because I was an artist, I too was shipped off to America. But I never went back because according to my family, I would not be able to realize my potential there. I could only realize my potential in America because America was a place that embraced, you know, the arts and embraced all kinds of innovation. And so this is, these are just a few examples. There are so many more, but there's not enough time to go into all the detail. Well, speaking of um, coming to America, one of the, before you even talk about your um, 
trip here and what it was like, you describe in the book that you grew up in this uh, multi-religious community in Kashmir. You attended a Catholic school and your um, classmates and friends were Hindu and Sikh and Muslim and that you were really quite popular in school. But that once you came to America, I think you said you were 16 when, when you came here, you felt a little bit like a misfit. Um, can you share with us what, what that experience was like coming to America as a teenager? And then um, I particularly want you to share that story of your first day at Jericho High School and what it is, how you got ready for it, you know, the, the shopping expedition and what you ended up wearing. And um, I think that's just, just so fun. Yeah, well... Uh, you know, with serious issues, we always have to break into some fun. I tried to inject these little stories into my book so people would, would see the humor in what it is to be a new immigrant in this country. You, people don't, they, they don't have the appreciation for what immigrants go through trying to acclimatize them to American culture. I was a prefect of an all-girls missionary school run by Irish nuns of St. Patrick's Order. Okay. I was a popular girl. I commanded respect. I was a captain of the hockey team. So when I landed in America in a 99% Jewish neighborhood, my aunt and I, my aunt lived here. If they were doctors, she had no idea what girls were in school. So she took me on a shopping trip to Sears. And so we, we, we picked this 100% polyester suit, which was all print. And I thought I was going to look smashing in it. So when I walked into school, my first day wearing no makeup, because that's what we never wore makeup in school, with two long braids and a 100% polyester suit, I was shocked to see that the other girls either looked like hippies in jeans, long, flowery skirts, they had big hair, just like as if they had come out of a disco party. And the boys wore torn dungarees and overalls. I knew I was in trouble right away. And no matter what I wore, I also realized I could wear a pantsuit or a paper bag. I was different from these kids. And that was going to be it because I was the only Asian. I was the only Muslim. I was the only brown person in the entire school, actually the first immigrant who came to the school. So then Mr. Green, who was my teacher, pronounced my name F-A-R-H-A-T out loud. <laughs> And I stood up to respond to him as I had done in Catholic school. Meanwhile, the rest of the class were lounging in their seats. Many of them seemed half asleep or stoned. And there I was standing up straight and saying, yes, sir, as if I was in a military academy. Everybody started snickering when they heard my name. Why is she standing? Oh, she's some new girl. Where does she come from? What's her name? Uh, far hat. Oh, no, she's far out. And then people started saying I was far out. And, you know, I'm a popular girl back home, so I was, I'm not a far-out girl. So Mr. Green jumped out at his, with his threats. If anybody in the class made fun of me, he would throw them out of class. The teasing ended, but I vowed to use my nickname, my given nickname when I was a child. It was Daisy. So I put everything to rest. But more important than that, I joined the hockey team because I was... Uh, goalie. I mean, I, I knew how to score goals. And, you know, when I when I scored goal after goal, and I took the dismal team from being nothing to winning the, you know, the county, I was, you know, hailed as a hero. And I realized that through sports, you know, um, you can do a lot. But years later, I was invited, I, I was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I, when I walked into the school in the auditorium, I was stunned at what I saw. 65% of the student body was not white. They were Asians of all, you know, denominations and American blacks. And, you know, they were all, and a lot of the people had their own traditional names. They didn't have to change names like I did or drop their official names. Oh, that's wonderful. What a change. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, you um, and Mr. Green sounds amazing. You and I think he asked you to give your first talk. So you gave your first sort of official talk on Islam to your high school class, uh, I think when you when you were 16. Um, tell us about that experience. And do you think that particular experience of sort of presenting on Islam and looking at, is, at Islam as sort of in a completely different way set the stage for your role as a spokesperson for, for Islam? Yeah, I mean, for a social studies teacher, I was a true specimen. I mean, he loved the fact that there was somebody from 
from, from over East. Uh, so he inquired if I was Muslim. When I replied, yes, he asked me if I could tell the class about Islam. I, I mean, how many 16-year-olds know anything about yeah. Islam? We are talking about pre-Google, pre-internet. Yeah. And I told him I had no idea what to say, but he was persistent. Why don't I study up and come prepared for the class, he said. And so, but then there was something that was ironic. The same thing had happened to my grandfather when he was at Harvard. He had been asked to do a presentation and he discovered Islam in the library at Harvard, which was a very extensive library. Fortunately, his love of Islam resulted in him writing a book called The Kashmiri Muslim, which was an excellent resource for me. So I lifted the whole section of the five pillars of Islam and the beliefs of Muslims and the basic tenets. And here I was standing in front of the class talking about the basic tenets of Islam to a largely Jewish uh, kids who knew little about their own religion, much less mine. At first I was nervous, but as I was speaking, I felt as if a switch had been flipped inside me. Basic as it was, my little talk gave me a sense and control of leadership. And once again, I found myself at the podium and my classmates were intrigued, not so much about Islam, it seemed, but about my life. I was no longer the odd kid out, the girl people were pointing to, as I was now part of the conversation. And my 16-year-old self, who was just beginning her journey, was guided by a path paved by my grandfather and his cherished books. And I realized now that the power of the family motto, knowledge, uh, uh, you know, increase me in knowledge, was actually going to become my set of wings that I would lean on throughout my life. Decades after my presentation to Mr. Green's classroom, he and my community, school community, would rise to defend me during the Ground Zero mosque controversy, which I was part of. It was, I was one of the people that proposed it. And I had to wonder if I had not shared my beliefs with my teachers and my fellow students when I was in high school, would they have had the exposure that ultimately led them to understand and support me when so many people were rising to judgment? So... You know, at that point, I thought I was just representing me, and but something inside of me made me realize that I was going to be an ambassador. And this is a role many Muslims play today. I know every Muslim that has the same story, how they were asked to rise up and speak for people and speak for the community. So this has given rise to many Muslims who are civically engaged, who are running for politics, who are public speakers. So this is just not my story. It's a story of Muslims in general. No, that's very true. And I think sort of that that might have been sort of the, your first um, uh, presentation or, or official public presentation. But then you write about later on, many years later, while you were working in New York, um, you became frustrated by how Muslim women were portrayed um, by the media here in the US. And I think you mentioned that uh, at the beginning of our this sort of conversation as well, that Muslim women are often shown to be passive, um, subjugated, but yet that has not been your experience um, or the experience of many Muslim women that you know. And so in your book, you write that as a result of that negative portrayal of uh, women in the media here, you were motivated to learn um, what Islam's view on women really was, sort of not just sort of your lived experience, which is which is powerful and phenomenal, but I think it, it encouraged you to um, research into it and specifically the role that Prophet Muhammad played in Islam's um, early history as a protector of women. Uh, in your book, you highlight the fact that the Prophet abolished female infanticide. Um, he established women's rights of inheritance, of property, of divorce. What was the most surprising part of that research um, when you did do that research um, in New York many years later? Well, the surprising part for me was, first of all, the part that I have to be grateful for, you know, a lot of times we think that we are a community that is challenged. And in that challenge, we actually wind up growing. Had America's not asked a million questions of me after 9-11, peppered, peppered, we were peppered with questions all the time. I mean, there are now every NGO that I know that has any legitimacy in the Muslim community has frequently asked questions. And they are usually the same old questions that we get fielded. And so we have to do our own research because we have to speak to our fellow Americans and we have to explain these things. And I discovered the more I delve into the Quran, the more I delve into it, the more I realize how 
how much equality, human equality is central to our faith. I'm not just talking about men's and women's equality, but really, uh, you know, human equality in terms of the Quran says, I have created nations and tribes so you may get to know one another. And that, you know, this diversity that we talk about, the diversity inclusion, which is a corporate term, is actually a divine plan. And so, um, so for me, um, that is exciting because that's the worldview that I was raised in. And that's the worldview of America, right? From the many to the one or from the one to the many. And so um, I also discovered something that profoundly changed my own worldview, which is that in, in our theology, in Islam, we believe that all humans are created as a God's uh, ambassador on on earth in other words we are stewards of god we've been given a piece of divinity a divine charge so to speak to act godlike in this so i as a woman have that same charge it's not just a charge on men it's a woman's charge as well so i rose up with that charge i realized oh my god i have a big responsibility and i was able to stand taller and bigger because now i was discharging something um, that god god required me to do not just, I was not just doing service. I was doing a charge, have a charge. So that was, that really opened my pathway to taking my activism very seriously because it's a tall order. Certainly is. Now, was that um, sort of the research into it and feeling sort of this charge, um, the motivation behind the launch of Asma? Uh, I think you launched that in 97. Um, and, and tell us more about ASMA, what the organization is and what it does. So uh, I had started ASMA in 1997, partly to build bridges between faith communities and to foster an American Muslim identity because I was coming of age and there were a lot of things that, uh, you know, trying to take the the kind of the, the precise mix of, you know, how to retain uh, the best of what Islam has to offer us in terms of all the, uh, you know, the the essentials of our faith, which is justice, pluralism, equality, the kinds of eternal, eternal values that are human values. And then how do you take that and then you restate that in such a way that Americans understand that? And that is the work that a lot of Muslims are doing right now. And I created an organization primarily to focus on that to, you know, how do you create an American expression of Islam? Not American Islam, but an American expression. It has to do with how do you conduct weddings? How do you, you know, how do you do your birthrights? Which is slightly uniquely different in every country because we are products of our, of our cultures and our customs. So that was the reason for that organization. I stepped down from that organization um, to to primarily, you know, start WISE and focus on WISE. But that was, you know, it was, the organization was created to build bridges between faith communities and to foster an American Muslim identity for the next generation. I think, that's, I think great. that's great. Um, also um, in your also book, in your book there's, there's a, a, a powerful, powerful and, decisive and decisive moment that you, that talk, you about talk about in your life. In your life. Um, um, that, 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 took place, took place after, after you gave a talk, gave a talk on, Islam on Islam after 9-11. After 9/11. And, and you were asked a question by an audience member, member that, that made you rethink your career choice. choice. Um, um, basically, basically, her, her, her question, question prompted, prompted you to quit you your to job quit your in job corporate, corporate America. America. Can you tell, Can you tell us, us what that question was, was and, and what you decided to do? Yeah, so just... Just so that people understand where I was coming from, I did work in the World Trade Center towers for about three years. I was on the 106th floor, which is the topmost floor. I was not there during 9-11. I was there before 9-11. And um, so after uh, 9-11, you know, um, Imam Faisal, who was doing all his speeches, I was kind of the tag along person trying to help him because I had a corporate job. I was working. I was a full-time architectural designer. And I, uh, you know, he was double booked accidentally by me in a synagogue and a church. And he said, well, we can't disappoint either. Why don't you go to the church and I'll go to the synagogue? And I said, well, I don't know how to speak. I mean, I knew how to speak. I could speak. I could do presentations, but I'd never done public speaking on religious issues. And he said, oh, you've heard me speak a thousand times. Just repeat what I say. So with that, I went to this little church in Princeton And, um, you know, just like the same frequently asked questions came up and like a parrot, I repeated everything. And then this little old lady 
bless her heart, she must have been in her 80s, late 80s, with white hair. She asked me the question about women in Islam, and I answered her, her question, and I said, you know, women have been granted the right to divorce, to own property, to inheritance, and all the all the all the things that you know people do not know about. And um, then I said, well, uh, she looked at me and she said, I believe you, dear, but can you tell me why women in Afghanistan are being stoned to death? Because that was the image that was circulating around where a woman was shot in a soccer field while the men were cheering on. And for me, that image was was very traumatic because as a Muslim woman, I felt like I couldn't do anything. I was living so far away. I didn't have a specific, you know, wherewithal, what, what, what can I do? And then she just asked me that next profound question, the life-altering question. And she said, well, dear, just tell me, uh, what are you doing about it? And that what are you doing about it, really stayed with me. And as I drove home, I wondered why I was giving my time to corporate America. I could be replaced in two seconds in corporate America, but my community needed me. My community needed my skill because I was very skilled at developing things and creating things. And, you know, I was an architectural designer. I knew how to plan. I knew how to implement. I had a lot of skill and a lot of energy and a lot of motivation and I was passionate about my faith and I had gone through a whole spiritual uh, journey and I was primed, I was ready. And I quit cold turkey, my paycheck and everything. And I dedicated myself full-time to community development, not knowing what shape it was going to take. I was just ready for whatever was coming my way. I think that's, that's great. That's remarkable and commendable. So um, thank you for doing that. Um, using faith um, as a way to sort of, um, as an argument to fight for women's rights. You mentioned that in your book, and you said you were inspired by how the suffragettes had used faith-based arguments to fight for women's rights. Um, I didn't know that until I read your book. Um, and you're doing something similar with WISE. Um, can you tell us about that? And then tell us about WISE, um, the organization, and uh, the impact that it's had on the community. Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, it's uh, first I discovered the suffragettes and then I discovered that they're actually pre-suffragettes in my own faith. <laughs> so so it was interesting. I had to yeah. go through the suffragettes first to then to do a rediscovery of people within my own faith. So it was devout Christian women, black and white together, driven by their faith in a just God that not only challenge inequality against women, but also the practice of slavery itself. They don't get enough credit, but they were the ones who were knitting these little, you know, um, pot holders and distributing them. There was no email in those days. They were then passing in the lawn from kitchen table to kitchen table. And they were doing these immersion therapies. Like, what would it be like to be a slave and lose your children and be separated from your family? These were devout women. And they wrote the statement the, at this first anti-slavery convention that reads as follows, that really had a profound effect on me. And it says, the time has come for women to move in the sphere which God has assigned her and no longer remain satisfied with the limits of corrupt custom and perverse application of scripture that has encircled her. And I thought at that time when I read that and I said, oh my God, I could write the same exact statement for the women in my community and what they're going through. And then I discovered doing some more research that actually before there was even a United States around the year 640, when Prophet Muhammad was receiving his revelations, his wife, Um Salama, who was quite bold and outspoken, noticed that God was only addressing men in the revelation. So she asked him, why does God only address men in the Quran? because these revelations were coming down gradually and the prophet remained silent. He had no answer because he didn't know. And her question was so sincere that it reached literally the divine throne and God sent another revelation to her query. And so validating women's equality forever. And it's called verse 33, 35. It's a very important verse for every woman to know because it's, you know, it, and it's also very profound because I don't know if there's any other scripture that has such a verse. 
uh, it says submitting, surely the submitting men slash women, the believing men slash women, obeying men slash women, truthful men and women, patient men and women, humble men and women, almsgiving men and women, the fasting men and women, men and women who guard their chastity and the men and women who remember God. For them, God has prepared forgiveness and a mighty reward. This is very profound. And so it's no wonder that from the earliest days of Islam to contemporary times today, Muslim women have built this rich legacy of fighting for their rights, creating positive change, and uplifting their communities. And they have an impressive record of peace and justice through service and advocacy. So this is what uh, needs to be illuminated today. Uh, and this is why I established WISE as a faith-based uh, movement to transform the position of women from within the Islamic faith and its tradition, because it's there already. And we do this by collaborating together as women and supporting the work of Muslim women leaders worldwide. And we started this in 2006. We brought 200 amazing Muslim women scholars, activists, artists, religious and civil society leaders who joined together to develop a holistic uh, vision for improving the position of Muslim women around the world. And we've had global conferences. We've got seven evidence-based position papers. We have the largest database of 600 influential Muslim women from the earliest of time to today on our website. And we implement impactful projects in conjunction with our partners. And there's so much more to talk about, but as you, there's not enough time to go into all the details. I think that's fantastic. And it's such a terrific resource. Um, for the Muslim community and even beyond. And it's, it's definitely something I want to spend some time on and, and check out. Um, now, at the start of the program, I mentioned there's another book that you are coming out with, um, the book on women's rights in Islam. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? So this book is a culmination of all the previous statements that we've done. And it really got started because I had a young intern who came into my office who had run away from home and she was Bengali from Bangladesh, and she was very smart, you know, a straight-A student, and she confided in me that the reason why she'd run away from home is because her parents were trying to get her married, uh, you know, to somebody overseas, a cousin or somebody and at a young age, and she didn't want that. She wanted to pursue her education, and so she challenged me. She said, what is Wise doing about this? I said, what do you want Wise to do? She said, I need information on my fingertips when I'm looking for information. I couldn't find anything on the net. I, there were so many places. Why, why isn't this information compiled in an easy to find way? And so I realized that as an organization, as a Muslim woman organization, I have an obligation to do that. So that was the, that was the idea behind that. And then in addition to that, I've been hearing from my Afghan sisters that Taliban is coming to power and uh, they want to strip women of their rights, of their God-given rights. And the, the rights that they have gained over the last 20 years through the U.S. engagement and in the Constitution, those rights are up for grabs right now. They might be completely reversed when we exit in September. And they have asked me to write very quickly, you know, please complete this book, <laughs> add all these rights in there. So, so my quest, my personal quest for truth always leads me back to the Quran, and I find a lot of answers there. And then I also find that Prophet Muhammad was the feminist of his time. And, you know, this, this little uh, factoid was mentioned by Gloria Steinem on Bill Maher's show when she said Prophet Muhammad was a feminist, and I remember watching him nearly fell off, <laughs> falling off his chair. <laughs> and so uh, the truth remains that the reality of Muslim women is actually very different from country to country. And here in the United States, you know, just in the last year, less than nine months, we've seen 20, close to 20 women, you know, become elected officials. You know, we have people in the White House and people are really realizing their full potential. But then in some countries, women's reality does not match what is granted to them in, in the Quran. So we have the demand uh, that women's voices be at the forefront of debates about our roles, responsibilities. And many uh, Muslim women activists who have tended to avoid Islam altogether <laughs> suffer from an absence of religious legitimacy, which fails to speak to most Muslims because Muslims, you know, the highest authority in Islam is the Quran. 
And if you can cite verse and chapter, and uh, you can, you know, uh, argue that along with that, you can say what the prophet did about that. That's very powerful that, you know, that really penetrates into, into people's hearts. And so um, I um, am publishing this book called 30 Rights of Muslim Women, uh, which is uh, a complete overview of uh, women's rights in Islam with clear Quranic and historical support. And it also just dis- disentangle uh, the, you know, the universal tenets of Islam from the varying customs that prevent women from having these, these rights. And a lot of times it's the nexus of custom versus religion or custom trumping religion that is the issue. Um, so through these 30 rights, we hope to improve the lives of Muslim women by connecting them to their deeply held beliefs and giving them the powerful tool to aid their agency so they can work in their own communities. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, um, it's also intended as a formal charge to governments and religious leaders to protect and uphold the Islamic rights of Muslim women, especially in those countries that want to call themselves Islamic, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan has no right to strip women of their Islamic rights. They can call themselves Islamic, uh, they can call themselves the Republic of Taliban, but they can't call themselves Islamic Republic of Afghanistan if they're going to deny uh, the rights that women have received in 7th century Arabia. Absolutely. I think that's such a powerful book. So when when is does that become available? <clears throat> Wonderful. Um, one is change tax a little bit. There was a really interesting um, anecdote that you shared in your book. Um, it's about multi-faith. So there's one of your friend, Muz, his daughter, Maryam, um, and you describe a um, ceremony that you helped her create that honored both her Jewish uh, and her Muslim heritage. Can you share that story um, with the audience? Yeah, you know, recently we have seen this whole crisis in Palestine and Israel, and it has really affected our communities here. But it doesn't have to be that way, because there are real life examples of people living with one another, loving one another that are of Jewish faith and Muslim faith. And I don't know why we can't take that, bottle that and bring that over there and get people to, you know, honor and respect one another, have respectful you know, have respect for one another and understand that with that respect, you can do a lot. So that story, um, I wrote that story because it was two people that I absolutely respect and admire, uh, Muslim Helene, and they have two children, two daughters, Hava and Mariam. And uh, Mariam, uh, Mariam was, you know, had been doing some Jewish studies. They decided they were going to teach them both religions, but she went to a very progressive synagogue. And so she had her bas mitzvah. And then she asked her father, well, what is the equivalent of Muslims? And her father is, is uh, you know, he, he is not, he's not that entrenched in the rituals of Islam. So he didn't know. So he panicked and he called me. He said, what do we do? <laughs> I said, we actually don't have a coming of age specific ceremony per se, like the bas mitzvah. You know, we have ceremonies when somebody recites the Quran, they call it Khatam Quran. That means they finish the Quran. It's a big thing. You know, there's a party, there are gifts and there's, uh, you know, it's a beautiful ceremony. But so we had to create a special ceremony for her because Mariam said, literally, she took her hand and she went like this. She said, I'm half Jewish and half Muslim and I have to have something of both. So we created a ceremony for her because she had never really uh, affirmed her uh, her Islam, which is called Shahada, when you affirm your God, belief in God and belief in Prophet Muhammad. So we created a ceremony for her called Affirmation of Shahada, which she would affirm her um, her uh, witnessing that God there's only one God, and uh, and so it was a ceremony in front of many people. Uh, you know, we gave her a prayer rug, we gave her beads, we gave her a locket with, you know, the throne verse, all the things that somebody needs. And now she, you know, feels she's fully Muslim and she's fully Jewish. Oh, I love that. Um, and I hope more and more families um, incorporate that. It's, you know, my, my 
kids are past that age, um, but hopefully it's something I could do with, the, with my grandchildren. The affirmation of the Shahada, I think is just absolutely beautiful. And you can, um, anybody can reaffirm it. You can, you can do a little ceremony of reaffirming your Shahada. I wish I had done it because I went through the dark days and then I came back and, and I could have done it if there had been a ceremony like that, public ceremony. Oh, absolutely. I, so many different ways to celebrate. So yeah, I, I love that. I wanted you to share that with the audience today. Um, now, you also talk about officiating multi-faith marriages along with the activities of uh, other activities of a religious leader. Now, did you ever imagine that you would be doing the work of a religious leader? As I mentioned, when I took on this charge, I had no idea what would be uh, thrown at me. So I never really go in there with a desire to do anything. If my community needs me, I try to step up. If, if there is a gap in my community, then it is my responsibility to fill that gap. And there was a big gaping hole in our community where certain imams would not conduct certain kinds of marriages or they insisted on things being a certain way. And it meant that those couples that are struggling with this issue would walk away and they would just have a civil ceremony. They would not have a sacred ceremony or they would not, you know, they would not be under the, under the shade of God. And it's really important for me that everybody feels, even if they are secular and they're barely religious, they feel that, you know, the God's hand is on them. So I do this to bring people, you know, to, to bring, to interject God into their life in that very brief moment, in that very important moment, right? Marriages, birthrights. And once, once they, they have properly married uh, with, within, you know, the guidance of Islam, then um, eventually many of these couples call us and say, we now have kids. What should we do? Where do we go to Sunday school? What do we teach our kids? And that's the next level. And I feel that these couples are walking ambassadors uh, for both our communities. And they do a tremendous amount of work. And uh, they are great ambassadors. And, and uh, you know, we should not push them away. Uh, we should, you know, bring them in and, uh, and uh, enhance, enhance their, their spiritual life. No, that's wonderful. So now you have, in addition to the 30 Rights of Muslim Women, you've got another book coming out um, on white supremacy. Can you tell us about that book? Yeah, some people say, oh my God, a Muslim woman is writing about white supremacy. Uh, I mean, I tell people just because I'm a Muslim woman doesn't mean I'm not an American. I'm not a patriot, you know, at the heart. I mean, I've adopted this country. You know, I was not born here, so I don't take this country for granted. I came here when I was 16. I took my oath of citizenship. I said that I would defend this nation, you know, uh, and and that's part of me is now the boxing gloves, the big boxing gloves are out again because white supremacy are, you know, supremacists are misogynists, they're Islamophobic, they're anti-Semites, they're anti-egalitarian, they're anti-revisionist. There are so many strikes that from my vantage point, that are against them, that I have to fight them at all these levels. And most importantly, why I need to take this on and my community needs to take this on is because they are impacting our community in a very significant way. Hate crimes have gone up by 65% just last year. And, you know, you just saw what happened in Canada where an entire family was mowed down. It's terrible. But this is what's happening. And in the aftermath of the siege of the United States Capitol, also, an urgent conversation is now taking place among the public. Uh, you know, it has sparked this, this, this conversation here. And, um, you know, as Americans, uh, we are becoming increasingly divided and white supremacy can no longer be ignored. And these white supremacists have caused the greatest number of fatalities across Europe. And, you know, they, their politicians are exploiting ethnic and religious stereotypes to promote this exclusionary nationalism. And they're influencing each other in real time via social media and dark web and are seizing opportunities amongst these current uncertainties of fake news. And their opponents are all of us. The white mm -hmm. people of conscience are their opponents. Jews, Muslim, Black Americans, all immigrants are their opponents. 
and they define their opponents based on inborn and unalterable biological traits. You know, um, they have hostility against anyone who challenges their vision of an exclusively white homeland. They incite feelings of victimhood and outrage at any loss of white socio-political dominance. And they are drastically dismantling democratic institutions and legal protections for non-white people. We see that happening all the time. So there is no single solution to this problem. A holistic response is always needed when such an issue comes up. So what I'm doing is I would like to once again uh, meet this national and global challenge by uniting the public through knowledge. It's the only wings I know. It's the only thing that seems to work for me and the people that get impacted by my work. By bringing knowledge about white supremacist movement into the mainstream discourse, we can educate, inform, and empower people with the tools that they need to change the hearts and minds and curb the growth of white supremacy amongst their communities. And it's really important as a Muslim, now I'm speaking as an American Muslim who has gone through you know, 9-11 and post 9-11 and how our community was confronted. We must never lump all white people together in with the white supremacist. It's offensive, it's counterproductive, it burns bridges, and it allows these extremists to divide us by playing on our worst fears. And I believe it's time for unity, unity of purpose and unity of achievement, a practical unity where we all come together and so we can build a bet better future for all of us. No, that's great. And, and I look forward to that book and a, a really, really important book as well. So thank you. Um, in advance for that. So I'm going to now turn to the questions from the audience. Quite a few have come in. Um, the first one here is, what are the greatest misperceptions that you think non-Muslims have about Islam? And what can media do to correct these misperceptions? Uh, so the, the most common misperception is that uh, somehow Islam is linked to terrorism or uh, in Islam is inherently violent. This is a, a gross, gross mischaracterization of Islam. It is completely false. It is wrong. And it's just, it, it would be like saying, you know, all white supremacists are, uh, you know, that they believe uh, that, you know, that, I mean, I'm just making an analogy, uh, are all, you know, it, somehow based in Christian thought. Uh, you know, um, uh, ISIS and people, Daesh and other groups who exploit uh, Islam and actually weaponize Islam to meet their political goals, just like the white supremacists are weaponizing Christianity right now. So that is one major flaw. And I have asked the media, I do it, and every Muslim organization I know does it, that is Islam permanently, the Islam, the religion that we practice, has to be delinked from the activity of the terrorists or what the terrorists do. They're terrorists, they're terrorists. Islam is a religion. So um, the other falsity, which I, which hopefully will get clarified with my 30 rights book once people read it. And a lot of my, a lot of my researchers that are doing the research with me right now on this book are saying they can't believe, they can't believe how, you know, how, uh, you know, how um, Islam honors women and respects women. And if you just understood it. So um, the other, the second one is that somehow women are second-class citizens or don't have the same rights. It's just not true. And the third one, which is, is more of a political issue that somehow Muslims are not capable of democracy, you know, and, uh, and that, you know, that they are only interested in theocracies or, uh, you know, there are many Muslim nations that are democratic nations, and I can't go through the whole list right now, but uh, that's also wrong. And, um, there are, you know, that somehow Muslims are not patriotic. There are more Muslims. Uh, there are like 7,000 people that, that have served, that are serving in the U.S. armed forces, giving their lives for this nation. Um, and there are others, but I just mentioned the top three or four. Um, here's another question. What's, um, what's the greatest challenge facing Muslim women, both in and outside of the religion? The greatest challenge, I believe, is that um, Muslim women themselves don't know their own rights, so they don't know how to fight for their rights. Uh, and uh, I think that, you know, it's my hope that after this book comes out, that women will have the information that they need at their fingertips 
uh, so they can, you know, fight for their rights. And uh, but that's from within within the faith. Uh, externally, I am also hoping that the book can serve um, as a tool for our allies who don't know, don't need, don't understand when they are when something is when they're confronted with these, um, you know, uh, false narratives about Muslim women that they will also have that information at their fingertips. So we've written the book in such a way that it's less than three pages and they're key takeaways. So all your key takeaways are really easy for you to take away that key thing and say, that's just not true, you know, because uh, because we Muslims have written it and we've done a lot of research, so everything is supported. So, um, so it's external, but it's internal. And internally, we have to educate ourselves. That's very important. No, I completely agree with you. There's a lot of um, ignorance. A lot of people are not aware, women particularly, women and men in, in our community. So that, that's a really important book resource um, that will be available soon. Uh, another question from the audience is, hate crimes are on the rise. What can be done to reduce them against Muslims um, and all groups that have been targeted? So I think that, um, you know, Americans are uh, not aware that uh, majority of us who are uh, confronted by hate crimes directly, like the Jewish community, the Muslim community, the African-American community, the Asian community, know these statistics, but majority of Americans don't. In fact, they don't even know what's going on. They just discovered white supremacy existed while all of us were confronted by white supremacy for a long time. So now there is a moment, a national awareness that there is a real threat from within. And that is why I think it's important for every American now to learn this information and to, to bring these facts to the bear. And I believe that majority of Americans are fair. Uh, they're good people. And if they receive accurate information that they can act upon. Uh, so a lot of times white supremacy, you know, operates within, you know, they operate, they seize on people who are vulnerable. So you have a vulnerable individual who is, uh, uh, you know, for mental reasons, for societal reasons, familiar reasons, all kinds of reasons why people become vulnerable to to a recruitment by by these people. And then the families don't know what to do about it because it's almost too late. And you're seeing these kinds of stories on CNN where somebody's interviewed, where they have lost touch with their parents because their parents have fallen into white supremacist uh, groups and it's breaking up families. So it's my hope that through the book and through the trainings that we plan to do around the country with target groups, that we can start spreading this information so people can actually act upon it themselves at their local level and educate one another. It all starts in the family, at the kitchen table, and then within the community. It's community to community, people to people. That's where the work is. The law enforcement can't root it all out. And uh, legal means are only good when a crime has been committed. But you can actually do early intervention and catch this thing early when you see vulnerability within the community. That's when we need to act upon it. So true. Here's a related question. Um, should understanding of religions, and I think they meant sort of should religions be taught in school at an early, um, at early age or early level? And would this reduce um, hate or hate crimes or misunderstandings? I'm a big proponent of that only because I've had experience with that. Uh, so I, uh, because of the pandemic, I was invited to speak to a school in Long Island, which is, you know, uh, one of the suburbs. Uh, well, uh, it's not a suburb. It's, uh, it's, it's an island off of New York uh, City. And, uh, you know, they decided that uh, instead of having uh, one class that because all the counties could be brought together. So there were like 700 students there online, uh, mostly watching through Zoom. And they asked six religions to come in and do a presentation, like a 10 minute presentation on the essentials of that religion. So I was asked to present Islam and I had, a, a, you know, somebody from Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism. I mean, we were all there and we just did our 10 minute, you know, <laughs> fast presentation. And you should have seen the evaluations. 
the kids said, oh my God, religions are so cool. They're so great. They all say the same things. We want to learn more. There was all this interest and some people even wanted an internship. Yeah, it, it's why shouldn't we equip children, especially if it's taught, uh, if all religions are taught equally, you know, like if they get the essentials um, of the faith. And I, I think it's important. I don't think that we should just do a cursory social studies one course on something it's too late i think we need to get get them when they are when they are young and and these are the kids then who can prevent a hate crime from happening or a bullying from happening within the community because in our presentations we showed them what a hijab is what is its significance you know if somebody says allahu akbar how is that equal to glory be to god you know these are these are these are things people become sensitive they understand these kids need to know what the symbols are so they can uh fight for one another and i think that in the school is where the work this work needs to be done i think that's so important especially the part where kids think religion is cool i don't think um you get to you get to hear that um, well, I just want to add one more thing to this. So this was actually told to us even in Afghanistan because the book that we are rolling out on women's rights, I was told by a madrasa teacher, madrasa is a school, an Islamic school, a principal of a madrasa. She said, I don't want to wait for this book. to. to I don't want to wait to read this book when I'm in my 20s. I want my girls to read this book when they are, you know, from nine to 16. Because imagine a girl reading about, you know, um, a about what the Quran says about her right to education uh, and how a Quran does not, you know, promote uh, child marriage. And when she's, you know, her parents are trying to get her married, imagine how she can stand up for her own rights. So as a result of that, we are doing a preteen book, which is going to be an accompanying accompaniment to that book. So it's important because teachers recognize it. Educators recognize the importance of this. Absolutely. It would in a bit way be you're giving them the red boxing gloves, you're passing that on. <laughs> exactly. Um, here's another question. Can women become imams? Uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, meaning there's <laughs> nothing preventing. We are not ordained. We're not an ordained religion. Nobody ordains you. If a community says to you, uh, I want you to be my imam, you can't. And that's what's happened in many places. People have appointed their own leaders because Islam is a very democratic religion. Um, everybody can be, you know, their own leader. Uh, every mosque is has its own leader, its own board of directors. We don't fall under any big rubric uh, of anything, you know. So it's a very grassroots religion. Uh, so the short answer is yes. If a community appoints you, yes, you have legitimacy. Uh, the um, the no is um, that's what people will tell you. <laughs> not I'm not saying that. Because in some ways, although I'm not an imam, I've done a lot of things that imams do, right? Like you asked me that question about, you know, being a religious leader. I mean, I've conduct marriages. I've done, you know, burials. I've done, I've even led prayer for women. I call the prayer. I do the call to prayer. I've done a lot of functionary things. I've just not delivered a Friday sermon or done a Friday prayer, but if some if a group of women asked me to do that, I could do that. There is a mosque in California that does that. They created a woman's mosque because they were not welcomed in multi multi you know uh, multi gender places. So they said we're going to create our own. So the trend is if women don't feel comfortable and they want to assert their own spirituality and they feel that they are being undermined, they will create their own space, which is exactly what happened in America when we created, you know, women's schools and women's colleges, right? We just said we're creating our own space. So there's a woman in Denmark and Copenhagen who created her own mosque, Mariam Mosque. This woman, there's, uh, there are, it's, it's happening everywhere. It's, it's a new trend. That's wonderful. So my final question is, um, what an incredible journey you've had so far. What is next for you? Well, um, you know, I think that the red boxing gloves are out uh, because we have a lot of work to do on many fronts. And, uh, you know, uh, my work is, is no longer just, you know, uh, the work I'm doing with women around the world. My work is here in the homeland, too, because if this homeland comes apart, and we have seen this in the last four years of what it did to the world, uh, when America comes apart, um, 
and you know the world comes apart because we're still the superpower in the world. So we have to keep our home base safe and we have to create peace in this country. And then we also have to in tandem work with other nations because there are so many people looking um, to connect with one another, to create a different third way of doing things, not the usual way of doing things. Um, so, so that, so my plate is full and, uh, and, but I'm always open to anything else that somebody throws my way. Uh, you know, so I'm, I believe that I, uh, from my own spiritual tradition, I think that I'm just a container and if God wants to send something my way and, and, and make space in my life for that, I will accept that. So I don't have any real grand plans. I just go along with what I think is necessary at that moment and what I think my new charge is. And that comes, it shows up. It has a way of showing up. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Daisy, for um, making the time for this important conversation, for sharing your insights with us. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Um, I'd also like to thank all our viewers. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I am Sarah Abbasi, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. And thank you for having me, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.